Chapter Four of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Chapter Four, Mister Bounderby. Not being Mrs. Grundy, who was Mister Bounderby? Why, Mr. Bounderby was as near being Mr. Gradgrind's bosom friend as a man perfectly devoid of sentiment can approach that spiritual relationship towards another man perfectly devoid of sentiment. So near was Mr. Bounderby, or, if the reader should prefer it, so far off. He was a rich man, banker, merchant, manufacturer, and what not a big loud man with a stare and a metallic laugh a man made out of a coarse material which seemed to have been stretched to make so much of him a man with a great puffed head and forehead swelled veins in his temples and such a strained skin to his face that it seemed to hold his eyes open and lift his eyebrows up a man with a pervading appearance on him of being inflated like a balloon and ready to start. A man who could never sufficiently vaunt himself as a self-made man. A man who was always proclaiming, through that brassy speaking trumpet of a voice of his, his old ignorance and his old poverty. A man who was the bully of humility. A year or two younger than his eminently practical friend, Mr. Bounderby looked older. His seven or eight and forty, might have had the seven or eight added to it again without surprising anybody. He had not much hair. One might have fancied he had talked it off, and that what was left, all standing up in disorder, was in that condition from being constantly blown about by his windy boastfulness. In the formal drawing-room of Stone Lodge, standing on the hearth-rug, warming himself before the fire, Mr. Bounderby delivered some observations to Mrs. Gradgrind on the circumstance of it being his birthday. He stood before the fire, partly because it was a cool spring afternoon, though the sun shone, partly because the shade of Stone Lodge was always haunted by the ghost of damp mortar, partly because he thus took up a commanding position from which to subdue Mrs. Gradgrind. I hadn't a shoe to my foot. As to a stocking, I didn't know such a thing by name. I passed the day in a ditch and the night in a pigsty. That's the way I spent my tenth birthday. Not that a ditch was new to me, for I was born in a ditch. Mrs. Gradgrind, a little, thin, white, pink-eyed bundle of shawls, of surpassing feebleness, mental and bodily who was always taking physic without any effect, whenever she showed a symptom of coming to life, was invariably stunned by some weighty piece of fact tumbling on her. Mrs. Gradgrind hoped it was a dry ditch. No, as wet as a sop, a foot of water in it, said Mr. Bounderby. Enough to give a baby a cold, Mrs. Gradgrind considered. Cold? I was born with inflammation of the lungs, and of everything else, I believe, that was capable of inflammation," returned Mr. Bounderby. 
"'For years, ma'am, I was one of the most miserable little wretches ever seen. I was so sickly that I was always moaning and groaning. I was so ragged and dirty that you wouldn't have touched me with a pair of tongs.' Mrs. Gradrine faintly looked at the tongs, as the most appropriate thing her imbecility could think of doing. "'How I fought through it, I don't know,' said Mounderby. "'I was determined, I suppose. I've been a determined character in later life, and I suppose I was then. Here I am, Mrs. Gradgrind, anyhow, and nobody to thank for my being here but myself.' Mrs. Gradgrind meekly and weakly hoped that his mother— "'My mother? <laughs> Bolted, ma'am,' said Bounderby. Mrs. Gradgrind, stunned as usual, collapsed and gave it up. "'My mother left me to my grandmother,' said Bounderby. "'And according to the best of my remembrance, my grandmother was the wickedest and worst old woman that ever lived.' If I got a little pair of shoes by any chance, she'd take em off and sell em for drink. Why, I've known that grandmother of mine lie in her bed and drink her fourteen glasses of liquor before breakfast. Mrs. Gradgrind, weakly smiling, and giving no other sign of vitality, looked, as she always did, like an indifferently executed transparency of a small female figure without enough light behind it. "'She kept a chandler's shop,' pursued Bounderby, "'and kept me in an egg-box. That was the cot of my infancy, an old egg-box. As soon as I was big enough to run away, of course I ran away. Then I became a young vagabond, and instead of one old woman knocking me about and starving me, everybody of all ages knocked me about and starved me. They were right. They had no business to do anything else. That was a nuisance, an encumbrance, and a pest. I know that very well. His pride in having at any time of his life achieved such a great social distinction as to be a nuisance, an encumbrance, and a pest, was only to be satisfied by three sonorous repetitions of the boast. I was to pull through it, I suppose, Mrs. Gradgrind. Whether I was to do it or not, ma'am, I did it. I pulled through it, though nobody threw me a rope. Vagabond, errand-boy, vagabond, labourer, porter, clerk, chief manager, small partner, Josiah Bounderby of Corktown. Those are the antecedents and the culmination. Josiah Bounderby of Corktown. Learnt his letters from the outsides of shops, Mrs. Gradgrind, and was first able to tell the time upon the dial-plate from studying the steeple-clock of St. Giles Church, London, under the direction of a drunken cripple who was a convicted thief and an incorrigible vagrant. Tell Josiah Boundary of Corktown of your district schools and your model schools and your training schools and your whole kettle of fish schools. And Josiah Bounderby of Corktown tells you plainly, all right, all correct, he hadn't such advantages. But let us have hard-headed, solid-fisted people. The education that made him won't do for everybody, he knows well. Such and such his education was, however, 
and you may force him to swallow boiling fat, but you shall never force him to suppress the facts of his life. Being heated when he arrived at this climax, Josiah Bounderby of Coketown stopped. He stopped just as his eminently practical friend, still accompanied by the two young culprits, entered the room. His eminently practical friend, on seeing him, stopped also, and gave Louisa a reproachful look that plainly said, "'Behold your Bounderby!' "'Well,' blustered Mr. Bounderby, "'what's the matter? What's young Thomas in the dumps about?' He spoke of young Thomas, but he looked at Louisa. "'We were peeping at the circus,' muttered Louisa, haughtily, without lifting up her eyes. "'And father caught us.' "'And Mrs. Gradgrind,' said her husband in a lofty manner. "'I should as soon have expected to find my children reading poetry.' "'Dear me,' whimpered Mrs. Gradgrind. "'How can you, Louisa and Thomas? I wonder at you. I declare you're enough to make one regret ever having had a family at all. I have a great mind to say I wish I hadn't. Then what would you have done, I should like to know?' Mr. Gradgrind did not seem favourably impressed by these cogent remarks. He frowned impatiently. "'As if, with my head in its present throbbing state, you couldn't go and look at the shells and minerals and things provided for you, instead of circuses?' said Mrs. Gradgrind. "'You know as well as I do, no young people have circus-masters, or keep circuses in cabinets, or attend lectures about circuses. What can you possibly want to know of circuses, then? I am sure you have enough to do, if that's what you want. With my head in its present state, I couldn't remember the mere names of half the facts you have got to attend to.' "'That's the reason,' pouted Louisa. "'Don't tell me that's the reason, because it can't be nothing of the sort,' said Mrs. Gradgrind. "'Go and be something illogical directly.' Mrs. Gradgrind was not a scientific character, and usually dismissed her children to their studies with this general injunction to choose their pursuits. In truth, Mrs. Gradgrind's stock of facts in general was woefully defective. But Mr. Gradgrind, in raising her to her high matrimonial position, had been influenced by two reasons. Firstly, she was most satisfactory as a question of figures, and secondly, she had no nonsense about her. By nonsense he meant fancy, and, truly, it is probable she was as free from any alloy of that nature as any human being not arrived at the perfection of an absolute idiot ever was. The simple circumstance of being left alone with her husband and Mr. Bounderby was sufficient to stun this admirable lady again without collision between herself and any other fact. So she once more died away, and nobody minded her. "'Bounderby,' said Mr. Gradgrind, drawing a chair to the fireside, "'you were always so interested in my young people, particularly in Louisa, that I make no apology for saying to you I am very much vexed by this discovery.' I have systematically devoted myself, as you know, to the education of the reason of my family. The reason is, as you know, the only faculty to which education should be addressed. And yet, Bounderby, it would appear from this unexpected circumstance of to-day, though in itself a trifling one, as if something had crept into Thomas's and Louisa's minds, which is, or— 
rather which is not, I do not know that I can express myself better than by saying, which has never been intended to be developed, and in which their reason has no part. There certainly is no reason for looking with interest at a parcel of vagabonds, returned Bounderby. When I was a vagabond myself, nobody looked with any interest at me. I know that. Then comes the question, said the eminently practical father, with his eyes on the fire. In what has this vulgar curiosity its rise? I'll tell you in what. In idle imagination. I hope not, said the eminently practical. I confess, however, that the misgiving has crossed me on my way home. In idle imagination, Gradgrind, repeated Bounderby. A very bad thing for anybody, but a cursed bad thing for a girl like Louisa. I should ask Mrs. Gradgrind's pardon for strong expression, but that she knows very well I am not a refined character. Whoever expects refinement in me will be disappointed. I hadn't a refined bringing up. Whether, said Gradgrind, pondering with his hands in his pockets and his cavernous eyes on the fire whether any instructor or servant can have suggested anything whether louisa or thomas can have been reading anything whether in spite of all precautions an idle story-book can have got into the house because in minds that have been practically formed by rule and line from the cradle upwards this is so curious so incomprehensible stop a bit cried bounderby who all this time had been standing as before on the hearth bursting at the very furniture of the room with explosive humility you have one of those strollers children in the school cecilia jupe by name said mr gradgrind with something of a stricken look at his friend now stop a bit cried bounderby again how did she come here why the fact is i saw the girl myself for the first time only just now she specially applied here at the house to be admitted as not regularly belonging to our town and yes you are right bounderby you are right now stop a bit cried bounderby once more louisa saw her when she came louisa certainly did see her for she mentioned the application to me but Louisa saw her, I have no doubt, in Mrs. Gradgrind's presence. "'Pray, Mrs. Gradgrind,' said Bounderby, "'what passed?' "'Oh, my poor health,' retired Mrs. Gradgrind. "'The girl wanted to come to the school, and Mr. Gradgrind wanted girls to come to the school, and Louisa and Thomas both said that the girl wanted to come, and that Mr. Gradgrind wanted girls to come, and how was it possible to contradict them when such was the fact?' Now, I tell you what, Gradgrind, said Mr. Bounderby, turn this girl to the right about, and there's an end of it. I am much of your opinion. Do it at once, said Bounderby, has always been my motto from a child. When I thought I would run away from my egg-box and my grandmother, I did it at once. Do you the same. Do this at once. Are you walking? asked his friend. I have the father's address. Perhaps you would not mind walking to town with me. Not the least in the world, said Mr. Bounderby. As long as you do it at once. So Mr. Bounderby threw on his hat. He always threw it on, as expressing a man who had been far too busily employed in making himself 
to acquire any fashion of wearing his hat, and with his hands in his pockets sauntered out into the hall. "'I never wear gloves,' it was his custom to say. "'I didn't climb up the ladder in them. Shouldn't be so high up if I had.' Being left to saunter in the hall a minute or two, while Mr. Gradgrind went upstairs for the address, he opened the door of the children's study, and looked into that serene, floor-clothed apartment, which, notwithstanding its bookcases and its cabinets, and its variety of learned and philosophical appliances, had much the genial aspect of a room devoted to hair-cutting. Louisa languidly leaned upon the window looking out without looking at anything, while young Thomas stood sniffing revengefully at the fire. Adam Smith and Malthus, two younger Gradgrinds, were out at lecture in custody, and little Jane, after manufacturing a good deal of moist pipe-clay on her face with slate-pencil and tears, had fallen asleep over vulgar fractions. "'It's all right now, Louisa. It's all right, young Thomas,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'You won't do so any more. I'll answer for it being all over with father. Well, Louisa, that's worth a kiss, isn't it?' "'You can take one, Mr. Bounderby,' returned Louisa, when she had coldly paused and slowly walked across the room, and ungraciously raised her cheek towards him with her face turned away. "'Always my pet, ain't you, Louisa?' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Good-bye, Louisa.' He went his way, but she stood on the same spot, rubbing the cheek he had kissed with her handkerchief until it was burning bread. She was still doing this five minutes afterwards. "'What are you about, Lou?' her brother sulkily remonstrated. "'You'll rub a hole in your face.' "'You may cut the piece out with your penknife if you like, Tom. I wouldn't cry.' End of chapter 4